This episode of InsureTech Insider is proudly brought to you by Deloitte. They are focused on uniting the bright ideas from InsureTech with large-scale traditional carriers and everything in between, bringing, of course, their wealth of industry experience and technology know-how into the mix, helping to drive the pace of change and transform insurance as we know it. Welcome to InsureTech Insider, coming to you live from the 11FS office in WeWork, London. My name is David Breer from 11FS, and I'm joined by my co-host today, Nigel Walsh from Deloitte. Say hey, Nigel. Hey, guys. So joining us today, we have some pretty fantastic guests as always. First up, and you'll know if you're a long-time listener, I'm about to butcher three people's names. And they haven't given me particularly easy ones today, so let's see how we go on this one. So be gentle with me, fellas, okay? So this is Jean-Stéphane Gouvec. Gourevich. Oh, I, I knew I'd get it that wrong. It was a nice try. So, so close. Uh, you are a professional advisor and insurtech guru. So how, how's it going today? Going very well. Bonjour, by the way. Tell us a little bit more about what you do, and, and I guess we can guess where you're from. <laughs> really? I'm surprised. <laughs> I'm a mentor for an advisor for startups. Currently, 22 startups, fintech and insurtech in 18 countries, including Kenya, Chile, uh, Sweden, Denmark. France, UK. Wow. I, I think I'm, I'm probably going to have some sort of advice to ask you about workflow management and how you manage your time later on in this. But uh, that's that's pretty cool. You're a busy man. I want to know how you fit all that in, right? Uh, sleep is the optional, I guess. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, I sleep like a baby. <laughs> which, which is good. Uh, next up, so we have Eric. And Eric, your second name is Abrahamson. Erik Abrahamsson, if you're a Swedish, and yes, I can pronounce it. As, as, as a Yorkshireman, that's as close as I'm getting. So, uh, And you're the founder and CEO of Digital Fineprint. So tell us a little bit more about Digital Fineprint. We help insurance companies use social media in many different ways. We help them with marketing. We help them find new customers. We help them analyze data. We help them find new insights and really use social media as an enabling technology to make their business better. We don't see ourselves as disrupting the insurance industry. We're here to enable and help and make them better. Awesome. Sounds sounds great. And uh, again, the right person to be on the show, which is awesome. And finally, we have uh, Luca Schnettler. So Luca, like super impressive background. So you're the founder of Healthy Health, which is and actually makes you probably one of the youngest founders actually out there right now. So you're yes. 19 years old right exactly, now. Exactly. That is correct. Yes. Impressive. Like what I was doing when I was 19 was not this. So like, well done, mate. That's very impressive. Um, tell us a little bit more about your company. Yes. So I'm Luca. I'm German, but you actually spoke my last name completely correctly. Correctly. So well done. One out of three. <laughs> One out of three. I'm very jealous now. <laughs> uh, and yeah, so I founded uh, with my friend Monty um, Healthy Health, uh, also called IMET Plus, which is uh, a startup using lifestyle data, which is um, actually responsible for around 30 to 50 percent of the uh, worldwide disease burden to identify risk for various medical conditions and then use those risk profiles to um, create really individualized, customer-engaging health improvement plans. So that's the two segments of what we're doing, really. Very cool. I'd love to learn a lot more about that later. Um, so today, we're going to do things a little bit differently. Uh, we're going to start off with a little bit of an informal roundtable discussion about data economy and the disruption that it's actually having within the insurance sector. So maybe let's crack on with that first. Fantastic. So right now we're going to be talking about how the data economy is disrupting the insurance sector and how that's really sort of creating opportunities in the business model. So I guess, guys, who wants to start on that? It feels like there's pretty huge amounts of change happening in this space at the moment. There's really innovative things happening, both in terms of the technology and the business models we're seeing. 
What do you guys think? So I'm going to I'm going to jump in because I had a really interesting conversation last night about manufacturing, and genuinely, my my career started in a factory environment where I was in IT, but the factory made physical desks and pedestals where you had wood coming in. It was machined. And you made a physical product you could touch, you could sit at, like this desk. It, it sounds like you're going to say back in the good old days somewhere Ooh, in this, Nigel. Harsh, a little bit, but. harsh. But my, my point is, insurance manufactures nothing. We manufacture data. So you would think we are the best placed people in the world to understand that and process it and engineer it and massage it and all do, do all those things with it. And I feel like we've kind of not done that recently or not done that previously or not done it well enough. And now with these whole sleuth of startups and people looking at AI and machining, all the things that come with it, we are at the forefront of industry again. So I think we are really and truly back into our lead position for this. I tend to agree with you. A um, couple of interesting things that we'll introduce after that a little bit, what these guys are doing and why they are very important for the insurance company. A first element which I found really interesting is that the insurance sector today is m a much more collaborative ecosystem in terms of innovation and working with uh, startups than what fintech is today, which makes, makes intro insurance and intratech particularly interesting because The startups know they need access to the insurance customer and systems and the insurers, the big insurers and reinsurance firm knows they cannot innovate without them. They can try, but they are probably going to uh, fail if they innovate um, internally. So that creates really a mutual need that allows really interesting collaboration to flourish. That's one aspect. In terms of the data, I think we are reaching a point where a lot of insurers and reinsurers actually are starting to realize that beyond the current services and products they have, they might want to go a, a little bit further, become almost a kind of digital guide to the ecosystem for the customers or provide them a dashboard for their lives. So working with people using data to help you f get better, uh, in better shape, in better health, for instance, like Luca is doing, is really something that contributes to, um, to this aspect. I, I think that's a really interesting point. And, and the fact that you think that InsurTech is, is actually much more collaborative than, than the fintech space, because actually, you know, we, we've seen a real ramp up over the last maybe two years, you know, starting with some of the things that people like Santander did around the, the whole sort of sharing capability there and really the only way they see moving forward is going going hand in hand I guess it'd be interesting to get your perspective on this you know do you as I guess somebody who's collaborating and then somebody who's competing technically with uh, some of those organizations do you see that the there's a sort of open collaborative environment right now absolutely because there's so much data out there that no one organization would even be placed technically to be able to get into it one argument we like to bring up is that all books that have ever been written in history of mankind makes up 52 terabytes of data. So that's all the knowledge of mankind brought together. Can anybody guess how much social media data is created every single day? That's 600 terabytes of data. 12 times more every single day and we've had social media networks for 10 years. 
So if you think about that massive amount of data, any one organization thinking they can analyze all of it must be delusional. So we have to work collaboratively. We need to work with insurance companies, get their data together, use the right fraction of it, remove the 602 terabytes of data as irrelevant for insurers, and then find the gold nuggets. That's what we're helping them with. That's our collaborative approach. If only there was the same strict publishing rights for, for social media as there was for books. Everybody would be far more intelligent, wouldn't so. they? But I think it would be a boring world. We need a creativity. We need a chaos, that's right? That's very, very true. I'm not sure it's as interesting as, as the books, though. <laughs> yeah, I've I, I got to say, I, I really agree with everything that's been said, and especially, you know, the insurtech scene, the, the first, I think, investment that's originally been made was around four years ago, I'm, I'm pretty sure. And I think um, Joel Stefan always likes to quote one article where how much, exactly how many million were invested in the first quarter of uh, of this year? 218 million. Yeah, exactly. That was it. So, you know, you can see that that the timing is really right. You know, there's, there's one TED Talk which actually, you know, um, describes that, you know, next to team and, and investment and experience and all of that, actually the timing is one of the most important things that a start, startup can have for it. And I, I would even argue that that kind of timing for the market in InsureTech is actually right now. You know, going even further into the into the discussion of, you know, the overall business model, I think, you know, what you said about the um, what you said about the collaboration, that it is, it is a really big thing because we don't want to, you know, completely change the whole market because, you know, insurance has its fault, but they, they've been doing this for a long time. So they, they know to an extent what they're doing. And um, we provide them, for example, you know, Healthy Health can provide them with, for example, a, you know, a risk score for different medical conditions. And then the insurer themselves can decide what they do with it. For example, I see the insurance market going towards a direction where it's kind of going a bit, you know, in the, in the opposite direction of being broad, a bit more narrow. So instead of having, you know, a health insurance or car insurance or something like that, you have a you have insurance for a medical condition, for example. So if we predict you to have a, to have a high risk of, I don't know, coronary heart disease, you can insure this instead of, uh, you know, in, insuring all the other diseases that you might not have that much of a high risk for. So, so granularization so of risks. So exactly. You yeah, break exactly. it down yeah. to its component parts. Exactly. So, so I think that's kind of where, where you see it going. There's a, there's a startup called, I think, Insure Thing. Yep. Uh, they were in Toby the startup. Team. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yes. And I think that, that, you know, that's the kind of market that is going to evolve from the insurance industry. But let's, let's be clear as well, though. So what's about data we ha- cannot forget specifically in the uk price comparison websites started what 20 plus years ago with data 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 so it's not new and we've been disrupting it for a long time whether we call it price comparison whether we call it insuretech today it's been happening for a long time has something dramatically changed back to your point with regards to the volume of data that means we need to try new things it's part volume as part having to catch up. I think you can see a clear analogy to the travel industry. We also started seeing a bunch of price comparison website coming up. That put many of the airlines at risk and only later they started investing in data, their new system, upgrading Amadeus and so on to become more data savvy. Insurers now, to your point, are actually coming into the same realization and know that they need to invest, they need to get to innovation, they need to partner with a lot of startups to stay ahead of the game. Otherwise, they're giving up the market whole distribution channel to price comparison sites. Maybe I agree with you, Eric. But I think the issue is not only is also the nature of the data you are um, that are going to be used or utilized. The, the data the insurers are holding are much more personal and going really. I mean, in things like healthcare and and things like that. So the nature of the data are, are changing. Also, in terms of the collaboration, I said that it's a much more collaborative ecosystem which I maintain. But until the moment one startup is 
is going to come and disrupt completely one of the segments. I don't think it will be actually the life and, and health, which will probably remain quite collaborative. But in PNC, for instance, you can see things like Lemonade or others that are really developing a more lifestyle-based insurance to cover, for instance, yeah, uh, practice of a certain sport, etc. And this could really... But there's a shift the pressure. from product. There has to be the shift from product silo, car, motor, home, health, pet, etc., 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 commercial through to customer centric. I don't care if you're in the air, in a pool, on holiday, or at work. How do I become more consumer savvy? Eric's going to tell us what we're doing and where we're posting immediately because he's got all the social data. We've got to find a better way to do it. I'm, I'm kind of terrified of you, dude. You like know what I'm doing on social media all the time. Like I, I need all those fake accounts. To really clarify, quick. only with the consent of the user. So you have to opt in to be doing it. Right. Or in your case, your mum. Uh, that's very true. But I, I think the the point here, though, is like you, you know, Nigel, you talked about the you know the aggregators disruption that we saw you know in the 90s in this instance that that was really a disruption to distribution rather than really actually the services that were being delivered and actually i think what we're seeing now is like wholesale rethinks in how people day-to-day use the product it's not about changing the product necessarily it's about how people are using it on a day-to-day basis which for me is like the best you know user centricity as you say it's about using it not buying it Uh, and that's i think something very common that we're seeing across the you know the disruption in insurtech and fintech and very very many other industries which is great you know one of the constant things that we sort of keep coming back to i guess is probably regulation as well in this space so how do you guys see you know is, is the regulator catching up or ahead of the game in this space is it an enabler for what's happening insurance with you guys or is it a kind of a bit of a tether right now the the regulator particularly the fca in fintech and banking has done really a lot to try to understand what was happening with innovation with startups and really get to work with the startups i don't think the process is really completely started yet uh, in this respect in the insurance sector and one of the really difficult issue is how to align the new business models emerging with the current regulatory models. Because as you know, in insurance, most of the, both the, the business and the regulatory models were based on long-term, almost commodity type of um, uh, regulation and, and business models. With the development of lifestyle-based insurance, moment insurance, etc., it's completely exploding the business models. And how do you adapt the regulatory model to that? I think this this sort process is not yet started. In terms of the data, it's probably a bit different because you already have a very solid body of uh, data protection regulation in the UK and in Europe. Um, you have the GDPR next year. We will see what's happening with Brexit and the GDPR. We will see what's the impact. And by the way, this is a really important element that people are not really talking about, sadly. I'm not fearful about the UK after Brexit not being compliant with data protection regulation. I'm very fearful about the impacts of bilateral trade agreements, particularly with the US in terms of the level of data protection and the impacts it could have if it's falling behind the EU ones for British-based startups closing down this chapter. Definitely in terms of data protection, uh, you have a much more 
flexible, I would say. The, the, the evolution of the, of the data protection regime is following or, or trying to catch up with the innovation. However, you have seen recently some serious issues with uh, what admirals try to do using Facebook data in a way that Eric is not doing, for instance. Hey, Eric, um, actually, Eric, you had a press release on this, right? You did something straight did, off yeah. We wrote, uh, insurers, please don't try this at home. <laughs> and we're trying to play on the words and that. It's very dangerous. Social media is very private data. Insurance data is very private data. Put them two together and it's very easy to make mistakes. Three main challenges we see for insurers is that you have to get the buy-in of the customer and explain the value before you ask for them to share their data. Data. Secondly, you need to make sure that you have a clear understanding of what the platform allows you to do. And that's where Admiral got into trouble because they were trying to access data they didn't have a right to choose to access. And then thirdly, it's very technically difficult to analyze mass amounts of unstructured social media data. You talk about the size of it. So they weren't fit technically to be able to use it. So we help insurers trying to solve those three challenges while respecting GDPR, while respecting data privacy in any of the forms that we're losing for. In terms of the Brexit question, I'm just happy I have my Swedish passport right here so that we can be renegotiating and leaving to Stockholm if we have to. I think one point that's being a bit missed is that if we use the data, we do this, obviously we're B2B firms, well I'm at least at the moment, but we do this to actually help the customer in the end because I mean, I got to come back to, to my example again, but I mean, I, I can understand that people feel a bit uncomfortable with, you know, sharing every two minutes the heart rate. You know, if you have an Apple Watch, it measures your heart rate every two to seven minutes. And I see the point why that might, you know, concern some people. But I is think- it a generational thing though? So should I care? Would my mum freak out? Would my kids worry about it or they'd be happy to share it? I mean, and I say that as one of the non-millennials in the room. I think, I think the main point about this is that you have to be transparent because I mean if you if you share the person exactly how you use that data and how it benefits the person then the person will be like okay I mean if, if I can save on my premiums if I share you know my, my, my walking distance my heart rate my blood pressure and he sees exactly oh I, I saved you know like I don't know 20 pounds this week because of that or I increased my, um, my, my health score I decreased my risk for coronary heart disease just because I shared this and because I did exactly that uh, you know you go I to that completely point. agree with that I think it's like that trade-off right at the minute where actually there's a there's an actual sort of a, a give and take there in the relationship, then people are happy to sort of make that type of trade. So long as it's displayed in the, the right way, I guess. The currency right? can't always be money. So if it's always money, it's a race to zero. No, it's and then it health as well. You know, it can, be, you can, it can be health, it can be money, it can be anything. I think it's predominantly experiential. I think the, the thing that most people are like, mon- money is a, a short-term measure usually, particularly if you're buying something by the by the step or by the, the minute or whatever it might be. The sweat coins of the world, that's sort all of stuff. Indeed, but uh, I think it, the, the sort of experiential trade-off that you can get by actually having more, um, you, you know, you're, you're more likely to give more data if you're getting a better experience, I'd say. Uh, as an extended millennials, um, <laughs> can I don't call, think... Can we call it old? <laughs> yeah, no, 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 it's not old. I don't think millennials... Um, don't care about uh, how their data are accessed and used. We, we actually, actually do. Yeah, I think we, we they actually do. do yeah. <laughs> and they do, but they want this trade-off. And effectively, it's not money. It's, it could be if you give access to your data um, and maybe they can be used to have better terms or conditions or to have uh, special terms because of royalty. I mean, you can build a whole uh, as, um, business case behind that. So that, But that's really important. They, 
they care about their data, but they want transparency, which usually incumbents are very bad at dealing with, and they want um, uh, a tr something in in exchange of giving access to their data. And I think this is really, really important. And a last point, which is linked also to that, is for insurer, um, it's more than a, an evolution than a, a disruption. Using digital technologies or what these people are doing with the startups can actually help make the business models, for, in, for instance, for underwriting in health and life, much more active, live, um, allowing really to, to see how the person take care of themselves, eventually give them better conditions if you see that they take care properly of themselves. And I think this is a really important element. And I guess, Luca, you're probably more close to that than anybody. So how are you guys sort of addressing that? Because this is something that you guys are doing actively with your product, isn't it? Exactly, yes. So we do really those, those two parts I really kind of tried to explain in, in, the, in the short introduction I had. And that is we don't, well, first of all, we do measure the risk and it's very precise risk based on the lifestyle data. And as I said, you know, there's one statistic that I like to always repeat is the lifestyle data you know, they account for around 30 to 50% of all chronic diseases worldwide, which is, which is a huge amount and it's neglected really. Um, so, so we use them to create the risk profiles. But then, you know, after a while we thought about, uh, we don't think it's enough to just, you know, identify risk, but we also want to decrease exactly that risk. And, you know, for the insurer, the, the positives of that is, you know, they have engaged customers through improvement plans and all of that. And, but for the consumer in the end, it's that they, you know, you know, they can actually see where they're doing something wrong and they can actually improve exactly that area. So, um, well, that's, that's really the, the two parts of it. And then also we really want to concentrate on, you know, not discriminating any, anyone. And, and, and that's like little things like, um, for example, you know, if you have any allergies, if you're going to get any disabilities, the algorithm all takes that into account and, and, and spits you out, you know, mental health, um, physical activity and diet recommendations, ex um, you know, suited exactly for what you need. So I think that's that's the really the, the kind of like the way you need to approach the whole. This gets interesting because you move out of personal lines, health insurance into the corporate world of where we're providing, you know, many organizations now are looking at wearables for employees that want to use them to track uh, things like mental health and stress and all those sorts of good things as an enabler, both to the employee, but to the employer also to go, actually, you've got a risk pool over here of people that are super stressed, that department's about to fall over, or individuals that you need to care for in a different way. And I think those sorts of things are actually really, really important, which also are indicators to um, efficiency. And along many, many moons ago, I remember uh, one organisation that produce color charts for some of your outputs let me just say it that way and it said you need to hydrate more to make yourself more efficient and more healthy it's it, it was a true story sorry guys yeah i mean why, why do you think employers give their give their employees now like you know free gym gym memberships and all of that it's because it's proven it makes your efficient you know your workforce more efficient that's what it comes down to in the end so how do you go about capturing that data what, what sort of particular methods do you use because I, I guess it's to your point it's that it's that trade-off you know if my I'd be all, all up for my employer telling me to drink more depending on what they were telling me to drink, I guess. But uh, like, what, what is it you're, uh, you actually do and how do you go about capturing it? Exactly. So we have a few you know, guidelines we want to follow. So first of all, um, we want to make it as hassle-free as possible for the consumer. So all of our data is really you know, measured in the background, which means you know, if the most basic level where we can make some sort of risk um, prediction is if you, you, you need to have a smartphone, let's <laughs> say it this way. So you need to have like an, an iOS or Android device. And your steps measured, we can already you know, give you a picture of where you are. But then the great thing about it is 
the person themselves can choose how much they want to share. So for example, I personally, I share a lot of data and actually, uh, you know, my, you know, it's, it's average around 500,000 to 1 million data points a year, actually, individual data points. But, um, you know, if, you, if you're really into that, you can, you know, d- connect any device. You can connect your Fitbit, you know, smart blood pressuring devices, smart uh, ways and, and all of that stuff to make it as precise as you want. But one thing we really want to focus on is kind of having it all in the background. So you, you walk and you don't have to input, oh, I've walked this and this today or I've eaten this and this today you know you can just scan the barcode and it goes in so that, that's kind of the way we want to approach the whole system or we have approached it I think that seamless sort of uh, you know n- not being aware that you have to do a workout and upload a thing you know like that that's where it becomes a uh, an addition to sort of something that people don't want to really want to do but actually that sort of background setup I think would be great it's frictionless right it's yeah. really simple but but the flip side of it if I put my regulated hat on does that then say to me actually you've collected enough data about Nigel or Eric or whoever else and you create someone who that has an unaffordable level of insurance given the, what you now know about them not really because you know you, the, the health insurer themselves can vary the price depending on on the risk pool of the person or the, the risk value of the person so you know if if that person is and I, and I know there's a there's a big ethical you know debate around whether you know you should give financial incentives or other incentives to to yeah. persons that um, are better in their health and I think actually it is ethical because you know if, if of, of course if you have any disabilities or anything like that that's absolutely you know the algorithm needs to take that into account and they need to support exactly those people and also a, a big big issue is mental health which we actually focus a lot on um and um but you know if if one can do all of those things and can decrease their risk they should be rewarded for it because it helps everyone it helps the economy it helps the insurer it, it's literally a win-win-win situation everybody wins i think what we're getting to is really the debate between what technology can do and how much of it we want to have in society i asked a specific question to eric schmidt uh, at google last year and i was asking him we can make a machine learning algorithm that can figure out who should not get insurance is it ethical for us to use it and the answer he gave back was very simple this is a regulated industry in insurance you're going to have to be talking to the fca so we went to the fca innovation hub and i do think they're doing a lot of great work they've told us what we can do what we can't do we're staying within the confines of existing and future regulation like gdpr so we're making sure that we work within the established industry now will there be an insurance company that will be tempted to use technology for their benefit in the future maybe but i don't think it will come from startups because we have too much to risk when it comes to building our new technology So where, where does that line live, I guess? You know, where is that balance between um, sort of risk-based pricing and morality sit? Because I, I guess we, we, you know, we often, when we sort of go down this uh, rabbit hole, start to talk about sort of one-to-one um, pro- pricing profiling perspectives. Like how far using data is too much? What, where do you guys think that would be? Well, that's a very good question. It's a little bit the chicken, the egg, and the whole box of eggs um <laughs> that that old that old french saying yeah, I, was, I, was, I was inventing on those um but seriously um let's think about something for instance we had this discussion the other day um with a reinsurer um think about a, a country like japan with the oldest uh, and fast aging population in the world one of the issue you have today is uh People that are 100 year old are cared by people that are starting to age to and in average are 65 or 70 years old. Um, but the issues around aging, for instance, how do you insure somebody who is 100 year old? Should you take the decision not to insure or to impose a very, very high price? Some of these people today are very, very healthy, actually. So how do you 
how do you think and a new model and, and before to give you the and who's paying for that insurance is a hundred year old but it's really important because it means it's exactly the discussion you have in the u.s with the obamacare and whatever is taking place after obamacare that, that doesn't exist anymore does it it's well uh, <laughs> it's kind of not existing anymore but the, the the issue is still here and it's the same for us It is fundamental for the insurers to cover as many people as possible and be as universal as possible. And it's fundamental for you and me, because otherwise our premiums are going to be incredibly high. So the, the whole economy of the system is kind of predicated to the insuring have almost a universal a universal coverage. Well, it depends where you are country-wise. If you're in the UK, where we have a, a brilliant national health service, we have the we always have something to fall back on and rely on. Not everyone has private health or um, cover for different issues that they, they may have. Maybe the answer is that... Um, We go out and Luca open sources his platform for the NHS to go and use. I'm not saying you go do it, but you give them the ability to dramatically improve the health of society by giving them all this great data. And then um, Eric pops along and engages them in a completely different way because they're now engaging on social channels and doing different things. Absolutely. I, I mean, uh, that's completely correct. And I'd like to go back to the point uh, Josephine said, actually. And that's between uh, how, how do you actually, you know, ensure a hundred year old person? And uh, when we have it, when we were having that um, discussion with the reinsurer, you know, the the, the, um, the example came off. I think it was, you know, you have one um, very healthy 100 year old, and you have one not so healthy 100 year old. Which one do you in, uh, insure? And I think the question isn't which one, but I think it's more to say, how do you get that 100 year old person who isn't, you know, that healthy to get to the same level the other person is? And that's then, you know, the second part of engaging the customer towards you know identifying the risk seeing where the person needs to improve and actually helping him because you know again it's this win situation for both parties and on the other side of the uh, age scale how do you ensure that you engage with millennials to take life insurance to to think about their pensions the the two sides and this is where these guys with the use of data and and, and pro providing new type of um, tools to insurance can really have an impact I think, to your point, it really comes down to where are the people. If you want to drive engagement, you need to be where people are. And when it comes to our generation, people in their 20s, 30s, up to 40s, we're on social media. People spend on average an hour a day, two billion people across the planet are on it. So why aren't insurers there if you want to be just driving more engagement? Hour? Just one hour? Like, Sorry. just just one hour? Yeah, no, like, power user. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> those are very short days. Yeah, clearly. Millennials need to step their game up. Clearly they do. It's, it's fascinating, though, like you say, because actually with the audience predominantly living there and sharing so much there, then it kind of feels like it's it's crazy that they're, the insurance companies are not using that data to actually either tie into the models in terms of what they're doing or even purely from a communications perspective in terms of where they're at. So I think you just signed an agreement with a, a, an insurance organization to help underinsured and overinsured. Is that right? Or? We did. So that's going to be with Hiscox. We're helping SMEs predominantly finding the right insurance coverage. It's very important for small companies that they know what type of cover they need and we're helping them discover that using many different data sources. Now, what that means specifically is that we are reaching the specific audience at the place where they are living their lives, to use the word you're using. And we're trying to figure out what can we help them better. So it's very interesting. And Hiscox's brilliant, innovative organization that we love working with. Fantastic. I, I guess you guys are clearly both millennials in this space. Is that like, how do you find the traditional companies assessing and accessing you? Do you, do you sort of feel, are, are you being served by the same companies that I guess you're working with? Is, is this a product set that's actually accessing you? Or is it something that's not quite hitting the spot? It's moving in that direction, I think. 
I think it really is because you know as we're seeing it now with both of our both of our companies you know being in discussion with both insurers and, and reinsurers I don't know if it's that, uh, the same thing but I, I think you know it's going in that direction but there's a big big difference between you know trying to take up innovation and doing it too much I, I think that's the you know takeoff because you know in, in the end an insurance company is an insurance company and it should stay to that norms however I think that um, you know taking up stuff like you know the, the big thing about um, Facebook chatbots for example they've, they've they're such a good way to interact with the with the customer themselves and I know that a lot of fintech um, companies do that now and, and help you know analyze bank accounts and all of that and I, and I think you know as an insurance company, you should go away from this paper bureaucratic kind of way, which they're doing, but don't overdo it. Th- that's my kind of... There was a, there's some great examples in that space, as you know, the Spixies of the world and everything else. There's a, an announcement this week from uh, uh, one of the insurers with a chatbot for getting a quote. Um, you've seen Clio in the banking space. But as you, as you were talking, you, early on, you talked about collaboration rather than fighting with the insurance organizations if you listen to the last uh, episode around the news they talked about the millennials on a bus talking about starling or um or monty with starling bank by collaborating and not having your own brand as strong as some of the insurers does that prohibit you having that level of engagement with the new world i guess or are you good enough to go we're working with hisox we're working with axe or whoever it may well be to go actually we're associated and by association we've got the trust of these guys that have been around for decades and actually people do trust i think you choose the difficulty when you're on a startup and you have to choose which type of difficulty you want you can either choose difficulty of getting insurance companies to come out and collaborate with you which is difficult or you can try to build your own brand and stand alone and earn the trust of people which takes a long time some are trying to do it that way lemonade one example in the US personally i think it's more fun it's more collaborative it's more engaging to be creating shared value and that means that we bring innovation insurance companies bring their brand and their technology and all the great people so that we bring new things together that's my choice many people are doing it differently of course that's the difference between fintech and and insurtech fintech particularly i'm working with loot or the purdue and and all these people loot monzo starling establish themselves in reaction and against the bank, because the banks, to be honest, have been extremely bad, uh, particularly with this segment of the population. They are not providing the service the way the millennials want, um, etc. So it, it became really increasingly uh, a matter of confrontation where you are better than the bank. It's not yet or it's not entirely the same situation in insurance, particularly not life and health. Might be different in other segments, but it's that's where you have the collaboration. Rather, Luca is not going to necessarily say I'm better than, let's say, Alliance, for instance. That's not he's not interested into that. No, I'm filling it's, a gap. That's that's the point. You I'm, are I, helping I, I'm, I'm them and filling a gap. A gap. Exactly. So the, there is a really a, a difference of nature. It could change if there is suddenly a very disruptive business model that is developing in insurance, then it will change. And only through collaboration can we get there. So I, I agree with you. Eh? This is, the, this is the, the right way to do it for me. Um, I, I think probably the, the thing I'd, I'd say to that is that for within the within fintech, for every Monzo and Starling, there's a Solaris bank and a Rails bank. You know, actually, I think the, the thing that we're seeing very similar in in, uh, in SureTech within fintech is that actually the most disruption is actually happening to legacy suppliers. It's the old thinking that kind of got them into the way of uh, 
probably not being as relevant to the to the insurance companies as the, as they really really should be which is why actually there's all of the opportunity you know you you talk about filling space and actually filling the space that those legacy suppliers have has kind of left of really where the the big organizations need to move to is actually very similar to to what somebody like a clear bank is doing with you know name a bank ay you know um so it kind of feels like the the supplier disruption i feel is where actually the biggest impacts actually happening in in both of these industries really true but there is a very big problem right now with uh, fintech and um, which is the total deserance uh, around the implementation of the psd2 where the banks are just completely struggling in uh, actually developing which is quite frightening six months before before it's supposed to be implemented uh, supposed to be is probably the good word in that yeah <laughs> but it's just blocking any collaboration at the moment with between fintechs and, and and banks and that's a huge problem it is definitely i, I think the um in, in both industries i'd say um maybe the level of disruption and change probably isn't the thing that's driving the incumbents desire to really sort of get on on the uh, the wagon now and actually make the, these things happen i think it's almost we're, we're seeing necessity and erosion of of market share erosion of actual profitability within these markets which is is really sort of driving people to to making more significant changes and in collaboration with uh, smaller, younger companies who have got uh, more uh, operational efficiency of actually fixing those things in every walk of life just seems like a sensible thing, whether it's insurance or banking or retail. As long as it delivers enough benefits. Exactly. I think, and I think that's the thing. And I think, you know, power of choice is the is the, the best thing in the world, right? So actually, if I'm a, an Aviva or a, a, any of the, the insurance companies in this space, they're actually having the opportunity to work with smaller companies who've got new and sort of vibrant ways of thinking that bring about a, a different perspective and a different culture into my company. You know, you're, you're ticking so many boxes in terms of actually bringing in uh, new practices, new processes, and, and real wholesale new benefits to people's customers. If I have a minute on that, um, um, implementing new or digital technologies and, and changing is never easy. And you know that you are both involved into in, uh, enterprise transformation and digital transformation. In some segments like PNC, implementing digital means, for instance, there was a really interesting study. I think it was from McKinsey, but I'm not sure, showing that implementing a PNC, uh, digital uh, technologies in uh, car insurance could lead to, for a couple of months or years, to around 20% loss in revenues. So it's not easy to take the decision to, for a moment, possibly quite long, lose revenues. Sure. But you know that after that, it will pick the up. Long term it will. The long term is necessary. And also, there is no digital transformation without a change in the culture internally, yeah. which is also the key crucial aspect. And the operating model to support the new economy as opposed to the old economy and have those work in parallel as you go through that transition. And that's where Luca and Eric are bringing the possibility for the people also to change internally. Mm. I think that's a really interesting point. Like you say, and the decision making become, if I'm a, you know, a CEO of an insurance company, my my decision making might come, become slightly impaired if I'm facing into implementing, paying to implement a significant kind of investment changing the culture and then maybe seeing my business model drop off by 20 percent um but th this is the you can either defend something for a long time that might not be working or you can kind of change with an hour and move towards what what uh, will work for people tomorrow so and maybe that's a good place to kind of wrap this up um maybe if we look now i, I suggest there's actually been maybe six or seven things in the news this week which has been uh, pretty sort of impacting so maybe let's have a chat about what's happened in the news 
Well, um, there was an interesting uh, report uh, at the beginning of the week about uh, investment in insurtech picking up quite considerably. 2017 really seems to be the uh, the year of insurtech. I, I can tell you, for me, it is definitely the year of insurtech. I'm working much more in insurtech than in fintech at the moment. And apparently, the first quarter in the UK, the investment reached 218 million pounds which means that 2017 could be quite a bumper year. However, it must be also noticed that uh, Berlin and Paris are apparently growing very strongly behind London too, and particularly Berlin. Wow. It's it's amazing, like, you you know, we've, we've said this a few times before on the show, Nigel, but, you know, big swathes of investment coming into this space is always a good sign of, uh, you know, people's behaviours and, and habits actually changing with the within the incumbents. So it's uh, great to see the money flowing in and, and actually the changes that we're now seeing in some of the propositions and probably backed up by the next story actually so over on TechCrunch this is one of Betterview just raised another £2 million to analyse drone footage and we've talked about drones before I mean you know watching the investment for me is the same as walking into a city or, or, or town and looking at the number of cranes that are doing development so there are lots of cranes doing development in InsurTech this for me is a reaffirmation that both the space is exciting number one but drones can continue to be actually let's start analyzing data out of the aerial footage um it's a two and a half year old organization uh, the stats are quite interesting i think they've said something like eight million commercial properties uh, in the u.s with more than three hundred thousand of these buildings are valued at more than five million which is a segment that better fewer going after so it's a decent size opportunity to take uh, insight from the the drone footage going forward. So, what are what are the better view guys doing? So, are they just popping drones up above areas and then using that to analyze what's going to happen and start to analyze the risk as a result of, of doing that. Wow. Now, before, if you walk around the city, you'd have people that were doing those sorts of surveys or otherwise using other means. Now, it's much easier to do those things. It's using much more cost effective because before that, I think they had to use helicopters and stuff like that as well, which obviously you know costs. And, and I feel sorry for all these poor helicopter pilots who uh, now are just to Hawaii yeah, and do some tours of uh, put out of jobs. So um, uh, next up on digging, there is three insurers invest in home telematics provider Roost. So what do we know about Roost? So again, another IoT-based organization. For me, again, uh, pet projects and hobbyist of mine, love love the space in general. I think it's going to be huge as to what, um, what and who owns it. Um, Roost, for me, are again, an established organization. There's $10.4 million of investment in Series B uh, from three insurers that are out there. And again, quite exciting to say um, there's further belief that's gone on into the space. You'll, see, you'll have seen uh, over the last week or so, Neos got some investment in this sort of space and many others. It is reaffirming that there is a race to own the keys to your house. And if the keys to your house are owned by your water company, your utility company or your insurance company, who's going to do that? We all know people trust their insurance company. So the insurers are desiring to be on the front foot of that for me. To come back to something we discussed earlier, one trend which, which I think is really important is the convergence between all these different elements, IoT, insurance, uh, telematics, smart houses, etc., etc., because they all come together. If you want to monitor, and let's take back to the example of the senior person or the 100-year-old, you might want to have um, sensors in the house that allows direct uh, connection to the doctors or the carers, etc. So all it's data all data in the end. And, and, and you know, one thing 
thing which isn't directly linked to that, but, you know, proving that point that, you know, data can be used in all sorts and forms is, for example, if you have all of that lifestyle data that collected, doctors can and will upload nowadays also the, um, you know, their reports on the person to, you know, Apple Health or, or other online sources. And, you know, you can use them as well to, to, to see if actually the predictions one has made are correct. And I think not only, you know, not only going to a doctor and all of that data is going to be relevant uh, in the future, but also other things like uh, Jean-Stéphane has said, like, you know, sensors in your house, maybe, you know, face recognition is, I guess, an, another big, big thing. So nice segue to the next story, which is the one TV program that insurers dread. And this is from Insurance Business. I, and lo- it, I love this. It, this it is actually great. made me chuckle because I'd never realised the correlation between the two until you go and read the story. And it's quite funny in that, funny, the number of incidents that occur when people watch the great British Bake Off, um, where they're trying recipes, they're watching the TV at the same time, and their kitchen's burning down as a result of it, or something happens and they make a claim, that correlation I'd never actually put two and two together. So I had looked at that closely. But again, health data, you could say, do the number of incidents for visits to doctors increase after they've tried a failed recipe that didn't quite work? So again, you could, you could, play about with the data here quite a lot and the stats in this are pretty alarming aren't they i don't watch this show so i'm i guess technically i'm protecting my house by not watching this show <laughs> to a certain degree you're reduced risk indeed i'm all about the risk but we're, we're seeing so zurich have reported that not only is there a 114 percent rise in claims for such instances but 40 percent claims hike for accidental damage in the kitchen so yeah guys don't listen to great british bake-off whatever you do Next up, there's a, a pretty interesting one here as well. So this is probably the one to round up on. And this is UK insurers uh, need to decide on moving EU policies by November. So I, I guess this is pretty impacting, right? You know, there's some pretty big uh, regulatory capability or regulatory changes that are coming through. That are gonna, they're going to have pretty big impact. So is everybody ready for this or is no? It doesn't feel like it, does it? It doesn't feel like these changes are happening at the pace where they need to. Uh, the Clearly, it's another of this uh, insanity around Brexit. Um, what will happen to the contract signed by EU citizens in the UK? How are they going to be regulated, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. It, it, it is just clearly nobody really. I mean, there is not enough in-depth analysis at the government level for sure, and I'm not sure that even with the best will. I'm not sure insurers can really take any decision before there is any clarity on how it is going to be uh, dealt with by government. It all boils down to we are in business for the long term and every organization will have a plan of some sort that says for continuation of our organization, we need to make sure that we can continue to provide services to our customers and honor the contracts that we have. And as a result of this or any other regulation or other changes that that, that may happen, they have to be able to provide that longevity for their customers going forward. This is just saying we haven't got the certainty that we need right now and we're putting plans in place to support that. And whether you're a bank, an insurance company or otherwise, they are actively establishing bases in other European countries. You'll see it on the news on a daily basis to go. We've established a base in this country to make sure we protect our customers and our own interests going forward. Which is just logical. I mean, I'm, I'm from Frankfurt and you, and you can really see it there how, you know, because of Brexit, Frankfurt is really growing in size and, you know, in, in investment especially. 
Um, but I mean, for a startup, it, it means we need to partner, especially also with with uh, with companies outside of the UK, especially in Europe. And, and we're doing that actually, and we're talking to people outside. And maybe on that note, let's let's leave it. So um, that wraps up another InsureTech Insider. So thank you very much to our guest. So Sean Stefan, thank you very much. Where can people learn more about you and the the work that you do? Uh, they can connect with me on LinkedIn, which is my main uh, hub, um, where I'm posting a lot of uh, updates to. So they can look for me on LinkedIn, and I'm quite easy to to connect with. As long as we can spell your name. Jean-Stéphane Gourevich. It's not that difficult. It'll be in the show notes. You'll be fine. And Luca, where can people find more about you and your company? Yes. So, uh, I mean, you can find me probably uh, best on LinkedIn as well. Uh, and there's also a link to our website, uh, www.healthyhealth.com. UK. Uh, and especially if you're an insurer and want to learn more, I mean, do reach out to me. Fantastic. Um, as with pretty much every week, we don't have time quite to cover off every news story that's happened in the last week. So don't forget to head over to www.fintechinsidernews.com to read all the stories that's happening besides the ones we get around to. Uh, you can also sign up to be a contributor to that and actually really get involved with the stories that we're talking about and the shape of the show. As always, if you like what you heard, drop us a review on iTunes and let us know on Twitter. We, we love the sort of like shout outs on Twitter. It is. It's good for your ego, but it just kind of gives us a little bit of boost to keep going, which is good. So thanks for listening, guys. Speak to you soon.